Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. Welcome to our Sunday morning online digital gathering here on Facebook and YouTube. We're so glad to have you joining with us today. Today, we are going to wrap up our series that we have been calling Encountering God, where we have looked at a variety of Old Testament passages and asked the question, what does it look like when different characters in the, the, the Bible encounter God in some way so that we can maybe get a sense of what it might be like for people today to genuinely encounter the presence of God in their lives. Today we're gonna to take a look at one final passage. We're gonna kind of recap our series a little bit and we're gonna do that by jumping into the book of Habakkuk. Before we do, of course, I wanna ask that you would just join with me wherever you are and say a word of prayer as we jump into this passage of scripture. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, wherever each one of us are uh, in the midst of this ongoing pandemic, uh, whether we are worshiping at home or uh, whether we are watching uh, in our backyards or maybe from a classroom or even from an office cubicle, whatever it might be, we know that when we come to you and we bring our hearts to you, that you honor that by giving us a sense of your presence. We may not always feel like you are with us, but we know that because you are God, that you are always present. And so today, God, as we wrap up this series, we ask that you would give us some additional insight into what it looks like to be in your presence, to rub shoulders with a sense of your spirit, as you are at work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. I pray that you would give us a, big, a bigger imagination for understanding what it means to encounter you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's morning, so of course I have my coffee. I, I sincerely hope that you have your coffee too, wherever you happen to be. Today, I want to ask that you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is a book, by the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, that we just went through together uh, as a church in our new online scripture study group that's called Call and Response. So for those of you who don't know about Call and Response, you can go on our website, OceansideSanctuary.org, and check it out. But basically, we have a group of folks in our church who have decided to study scripture together. And in approaching Scripture together, we try to approach it as a community. That is, we're trying to learn how to read the Bible in community and to discern together in community what it means, what it is that we're reading about, and how that can inform and enrich and guide our lives as we seek to encounter God. And so that group meets once a month, and two months ago, our reading was through the book of Habakkuk. And then in between those once a month larger group gatherings, uh, the folks who are a part of call and response get together in smaller groups a couple of times, and they read through those passages together. So by the time we all come together, once a month, it's not just me telling everybody what I think these passages mean. We're all really discerning and sharing and reading uh, and tossing out ideas together. And we think that's a, a better way to have a kind of dialogue with scripture. If you're interested in that, we'd love to have you sign up. The next one is coming up in a couple of weeks here 
uh, on a Thursday night. So again, just go to the, the church website, OceansideSanctuary.org, and you can see when that happens next. But two months ago, we went through the book of Habakkuk, and uh, the beauty of Habakkuk is it's a very short book. It's called One of the Minor Prophets. It's towards the end of your Old Testament. And today I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses just 1, 2, and 3. This is a, a kind of pivotal passage in the book of Habakkuk, where we see a shift from what's happening in chapter 1 to this vision that God gives Habakkuk in chapter 2, and then chapter 3 sort of summarizes the impact that that vision has on Habakkuk. And I want to root our discussion of this today in just these three verses from chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 3. So if you read with me, we'll put the words up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Habakkuk chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Now, I want to just pause there at the end of verse 1 and bring you up to, up to speed a little bit on what's going on. The historical background of Habakkuk is that this book was written by a prophet, probably a priest, probably a person of high standing, of high education. And one of the reasons we think we know that is because this book is written in exceptionally poetic language. The, whoever it was that wrote this, whoever Habakkuk was, he uses very intentionally um, high poetic structures in the way that he writes this passage. We don't have time to dig into those poetic structures today, but I just want you to understand that we're probably reading words written by somebody who was a high priest, a person of high education. And he's, of course, a priest in Israel, which at one time was a great regional power. In fact, a, a kind of superpower in that area. They were sort of like the United States has been in our lifetimes, one of the great nations. But during Habakkuk's lifetime, about the 7th century before Christ, the 7th century BC, Israel has begun to wane. It has begun to sort of fall in its power and its influence in the region because there's another group of people in the area, the Chaldeans, or in other passages of Scripture, they're referred to as the Babylonians, so the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are on the rise in power. So they're a nation that is gaining in, in military and economic superiority. And so Israel as a nation is beginning to feel anxious about this. And they're beginning to feel anxious in, in particular because uh, the Chaldeans have a nasty reputation for sweeping into other neighboring areas and essentially decimating those other nations and then taking over those nations and then capturing people and bringing them back to Babylon to be a kind of captive group of people. And of course, if you know anything about uh, Israeli history, uh, Jewish history, you know that's exactly what happened here. In about the 5th century BC, so 150 to 200 years after Habakkuk was written, the Babylonians do sweep through and they do conquer Israel and they do carry off the majority of the people in Israel back to Babylon into a kind of captivity. Well, Habakkuk can see where things are going. And so this book, this three-chapter prophetic book, is really Habakkuk coming to God with his anxieties, his concerns about what it is that could possibly happen. And so 
What we see here in verse 1 from chapter 2 is Habakkuk, after bringing his first complaint to God, he says, verse uh, 1, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me. So in this sort of pivotal passage, Habakkuk is saying, after he's made his complaint to God, listen, God, I am going to stand here, I'm going to wait, I'm going to be watchful until I hear something back from you. In other words, I need an answer to my concerns. I need to know what the heck is going on. I need to know what we should be doing in response to this growing threat. In other words, Habakkuk is not content to pray a prayer and then go on with his life. He's feeling desperate about it. He needs to hear an answer right away. Verse 2, let's go on. Habakkuk says, Then the Lord answered me. So this is the encounter that Habakkuk has with God. Here his second uh, complaint, his second petition to God, finally brings back an answer. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. Now this, in these, just these three verses here in chapter 2, is where we see the switch from Habakkuk bringing his complaint to God, to God actually responding to Habakkuk. And God's response to Habakkuk, I think, is very helpful for us in trying to understand how to recognize genuine encounters with God. Because that response carries with it God's characterization that his answer to Habakkuk comes in the form of a vision. In fact, one of the features we see in this book is that the language actually prepares us for this vision that Habakkuk is going to have. All throughout the first chapter, which we don't have time to visit today, all throughout the first chapter, there is all of this language about what Habakkuk sees, what he notices with his eye. In other words, much of the first chapter is Habakkuk talking about his vision, what it is that he sees. And here in chapter 2, verse 2, God shifts the focus from Habakkuk's vision, what Habakkuk sees, to a vision that comes from God. Again, verse 2, Then the Lord answered me, and he said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. There's another vision word there. Verse 3, for there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it does not lie. So there is, in God's answer, some sort of vision of the end that he's giving to Habakkuk to help Habakkuk deal with his anxiety and his frustration about this growing threat of the Chaldeans. Now, the first thing that I really want you to notice about this passage are some of the similarities with the earlier passages that we've read. And the first thing that comes to my mind, of course, is that Habakkuk is a stubborn listener. Habakkuk is not just somebody who is content to pray, but as we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk is going to stand. He makes a vow that he will stand on the wall or on the rampart until he gets an answer from God. And we saw that same kind of stubbornness, I think, from Abram in Genesis chapter 15. In fact, from Genesis chapter 12 through 15, 
We see again that Abram was silent, but finally in chapter 15, Abram speaks out and he brings his complaint to God. He essentially says to God, listen, what you have told me up to this point is just not enough. I need more. And it was just that persistence we saw in Genesis 15 that prompted God to respond to Abram and give him that vision of the stars. Similarly, I think we see a kind of stubbornness in Hagar, although Hagar's stubbornness takes a different kind of character altogether because Hagar's stubbornness is really the perseverance to survive no matter what her enemies throw at her. And of course, for Hagar, her enemies were the members of her own household, even though they were her captors, even though Abram and Sarah essentially took Hagar away as a slave, that was all she really knew as a family. And so when her enemies came in the form of Sarah and Abram, and maybe even her own father, the Pharaoh, who gave her up, what we see in Hagar is that stubbornness, that will to survive. That perseverance that allows her in the wilderness to finally hear and receive provision from God in a place of suffering. I think we also see that same stubbornness in Shifra and Pua when we talked about how they uh, stood against the edict from Pharaoh to murder all of the Hebrew uh, male children. I think we see that same incredible stubbornness, that, that same audacity from Moses who stands on Mount Sinai in front of the almighty, all-powerful God who says to him, let's just wipe out these uh, terrible people at the bottom of the mountain and you and I, Moses, will go and we'll find a new people. And Moses looks at God that created the universe and stubbornly says, no, let me remind you of your promises. Here again, I think we see in Habakkuk that same kind of stubborn will, that unwillingness to take no for an answer, that unwillingness to settle for no answer at all. And I think that's really helpful for us as we face sort of the difficulties and the anxieties of our lives, as we come in prayer to God or in worship to God, or we turn our backs to God because we suddenly simply think that it's useless to do so. I think that these stories illustrate that there is something about the human spirit that God has created to press in for answers, to press in to understand what's really going on, and to really press in until we know what the bigger plan might be. Sometimes we might think that that's presumptuous or arrogant, but these stories tell me that God has made me and made you to be the kind of people who do not give up, who press in and insist that God respond to us when we are in our worst places. Another thing that I notice about these passages that Habakkuk, I think, helps to illustrate is that all of these examples of how we encounter God, or rather how we see the characters in the Old Testament encounter God, is that even though there are some things in common, like a sense of perseverance or a sense of stubbornness, the other thing that we notice is there's almost nothing else in common about the way that people encounter God. And for me, that is incredibly liberating because I think that oftentimes in churches, especially in different church traditions, there's always a kind of 
uh, approved way or promoted way or often talked about way that we are actually supposed to encounter God or meet God or hear from God. What these stories tell me is that there is no one way of encountering God. There is no one way to hear God's voice in our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say there are as many different ways of encountering God as there are people in the world. How Abram encountered God, of course, was through this sort of inspirational, imaginative moment where he saw his, his gaze cast towards the stars, towards the heavens, and received in a flash of inspiration a promise from God that his offspring would be like those stars. That's an incredible moment, but it's totally different than the moment that Hagar had in the wilderness when she thought she and her son were literally going to die, and she couldn't stand to see her own son die, and so she cast him under a bush and went a bow-shot distance away so that she wouldn't have to hear his cries as he died in the desert. And in that moment of desperation, that moment of pain and suffering, God comes and meets her. That's totally different than Abram's encounter. And those are altogether different than the story of Shifra and Pua, who encounter God not in any way like Abram did, which seemed very much like this personal encounter that directed his eyes to the heaven, or in any way like Hagar did, which seemed more like this miracle in the desert when she finally found water and was able to survive. For Shifra and Pua, they don't encounter God in any kind of personal way at all. Instead, what we see in them is a rising up of the courage and the determination that they need to do what's right and to lead their people, their midwives, to do what's right. For Moses, of course, the encounter with God is very personal, but God in that encounter becomes Moses' adversary. God stands before Moses and threatens essentially to end his promise with Moses and all the people, essentially to do away with all that has been done up to this point, to liberate the Israelites from Israel and to lead them into the promised land. There stands Moses on Mount Sinai having a personal encounter, a kind of physical encounter with God we see in that passage. And yet that God becomes the adversary that Moses has to say no to. Yeah, totally different encounter. And here, with Habakkuk, what we see is some kind of sense through the impartation of a vision of the future that God has something good in response to this growing threat from the Chaldeans. So this is less personal than Moses' encounter. It's more similar to Abram's encounter. But instead of like this inspiration through nature, through the stars in the sky, Habakkuk receives an altogether different kind of vision, a vision of the future, a promise of the future. Now, what I think is really important for us to take away from this is that there is no one prescribed way that I have to hear from God. There is no one prescribed way that you have to hear from God. When we hear each other speak about meeting God or hearing God or encountering God or following God or any of those kinds of words, sometimes we do an enormous disservice to each other because we create this expectation that because I'm not gaining a sense of who God is the way that you do, then it causes me to doubt that I'm really encountering God at all. 
that's one of the dangers, I think, of us talking about God in this way in the first place. When we talk about God as though God is some sort of personal puppet or personal servant or cosmic vending machine to meet our needs, then we run the real danger, the real risk, not only of turning God into an idol, but also condemning others around us for not experiencing God in that way. You know, there are some church traditions, there are some whole churches who exist for the sole purpose of convincing everybody around them that they have to encounter God the way that they do. And that is just not right. It's not biblical at all. The way that you encounter God may be very personal. It may be very intimate. It may take on the form of receiving comfort from God in times of difficulty and need. It might take on the form of you feeling like you're really hearing very specific words from God that speak into your soul to heal the brokenness that you have, to mend the wounds that you've experienced. Or it might be something totally different. Your encounter with God might simply be your righteous rage against the injustices of the world that we live in, or as Jesus put it, that hunger and thirst for righteousness sake that so often goes totally unfulfilled. Some of us experience God entirely in that way and not personally at all. One of the most important things that I think I have to share with people as a pastor is that you don't have to experience God the way that I do. And I don't have to experience God the way that you do. But there is, I think, a kind of common denominator in all experiences with God, whether they feel like very personal, intimate encounters or they feel like bigger sort of uh, encounters that have to do with large social issues, or whether they just have to do with experiencing a sense of goodness in the mundane moments of our lives. However you experience God, I think one way that we know if it was God is the outcome that it tends to have in our lives. And that's the other thing I want to point out about this particular passage. Because what's happening in Habakkuk chapter 2, like I said, is this is a hinge point from Habakkuk's complaints in chapter 1 so now God's showing Habakkuk a vision of something true, and I want to point you back to verse 3 just to illustrate my last point. Verse 3 says this, and this is God speaking to Habakkuk again. He says, For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. And then in a kind of poetic couplet, the very next line, says, it will surely come, do not delay. Now, I want to point this last bit out to you in verse 3 because I think it communicates something really important about how we discern the voice of God in our lives. And that is this. Every time we encounter the voice of God, it always imparts a sense of what is to come at the end. And whether it seems like that good thing that's coming at the end is taking forever or not, God's word to us is always that it will come. And even though it might seem to take a long time, it is a sure thing. In fact, if you were to read the rest of Habakkuk 2, which we don't have time for today, but I would encourage you to do so, one of the things you'll see is that God seems to sort of paint a picture of this vision by showing in the rest of chapter 2 that those who appear to be so strong, meaning the Babylonians, 
those who appear to have all the power, those who appear to be so wicked will, in the end, get what they deserve. And those who are righteous and innocent will one day be vindicated. This is, in fact, the great hope of Judaism, and by extension, the great hope of Christianity, that however messed up or screwed up or unjust or unfair this world seems, that in the end, God will make all things right again. Now, Habakkuk's response to this promise in chapter 2 is so great. His his joy is so abundant that he ends his prophetic oracle in Habakkuk with a kind of liturgical poem in chapter 3. In chapter 3, if you go on to read that passage, which I would encourage you to do, you see that what Habakkuk does is he sings a song of joy. In fact, we think this was a worship song in ancient Judaism. He sings a song of joy to God's ultimate victory in the end. And that, I think, is the common denominator that we see in all encounters with God. That when we encounter the true presence of the divine spirit of God, what we come away with, no matter how great our anxiety is, no matter how how deep our fears might be, we also come away with a sense of hope, a sense of trust, that no matter how bad things seem, God will make it right in the end. That is, in fact, what it means to have faith, to believe that all of this is for something, that there is a vision for the end and it will happen. You may not know how it will happen. You may not know when it will happen, but you have trust that goodness and righteousness and love and mercy and peace will prevail as we persevere in our relationship with God. The reason I think this point is so important, of course, is because oftentimes in churches as Christians, when we talk about encountering God or hearing from God or being in the presence of God, often I'm afraid that we tend to be leaning into a kind of mystical encounter with God that has as its entire purpose to make us feel better about ourselves. And friends, that is not what genuine encounters with God produce. They may produce, of course, a sense of joy and a sense of peace and a sense of of trust and a sense of hope. They may uh, inspire enrapturous responses to a vision of the wonder and the beauty of God. All of that, I think, is true. But all of that is not in service to simply making us feel better or to put us into a kind of perpetual state of bliss. That is not the purpose of encountering God. The purpose of encountering God is more than that joy and that serenity and that sense of beauty and awe and wonder. All of those human responses to the presence of God are to carry us forward into God's good future, to be ready to take action. I love the way that the... Uh, German Lutheran mystic Dorothy Sola put this. I love this quote. She says, A genuine mystical journey has a much larger goal than to teach us positive thinking and to put to sleep our capacity to be critical and to suffer. What Sola, I think, means by that is this, that Having a mystical encounter with God is is not just so that we can become the kind of people who walk around all day happy and positive about the world and happy and positive about our lives. 
The purpose of encountering God in a mystical way is not so that we can set aside our critical thinking, our harsh thoughts about how things are messed up and screwed up in the world. The purpose of having a mystical encounter with God is not to numb us to the suffering of the existential anxieties that we face in life every single day. No, the purpose of mystical encounters with God is to help us transcend those anxieties, to help us transcend the brokenness of the world, not to anesthetize us to them. And by transcending those anxieties and those uh, broken wounds in the world around us, what we really often find is that our ability to think critically about the world and about life around us Far from going away or disappearing, sometimes that becomes sharpened and more attuned. Sometimes when we encounter God, we walk away from that counter more critical than ever, more able to see piercingly through the obfuscations of a systemic society that is constantly pushing down the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. No, sometimes encountering God means that we become more critical than we ever were, but we do it from a spirit of love because we've seen a vision of how things can be. And just like encounters with God can sharpen our critical thinking, also encounters with God, far from eliminating our suffering, can sometimes turn up the volume on our suffering. Because when we have encountered God, Rather than doing away with suffering, we encounter the person who created the universe, who created you and me, and because God created you and me, God suffers with us because God loves us. And when we encounter the suffering, crucified God, that often means that we suffer right alongside Him. And yet, there... Alongside our sharpened capacity for critical thinking, alongside our increased empathy for the suffering of those around us, along with that does come the joy of the future that God has promised. The peace of knowing and trusting that as we cooperate with God's Spirit, that future will come about and will not delay. That, I think, is what all true encounters with God have in common. And so, if you have felt like you have encountered God in some way, but the end result is that you simply have unplugged from the harsh realities of life, you've become blissfully unaware of the suffering that's going on around you, then don't be surprised when I come along and tap your shoulder and ask if you really encountered God at all. Today, what I want to do is invite you in your Facebook comments to just share how you have received a sense of God's promise for the future in spite of how things might be difficult. How have you, like Habakkuk, uh, received a sense of a vision for how things could be better even though it seems like that is a very long ways away. So that could be something small. It could be something about your own life, some sense of a hopeful future that you feel like God has promised you, or it could be for your family, or it could be for the church, or it could be for any social group that you are a part of, because any group we're a part of involves human suffering and frailty and brokenness of some kind. And I think God's Spirit always speaks into those moments. So if you would, on Facebook or YouTube today, 
Be so bold as to just jump on and put your comments in there and share. When has God given you a sense of a better future or hope for a better future that you can trust and rely on? I hope you guys are having a great week. I hope you're staying healthy and safe at home. I want to ask that you just join with me one last time for prayer before we wrap up our worship today. God, we thank you again for this opportunity to read these words from Habakkuk. We ask that you would inspire us with a sense of trust, a sense of vision for what you are bringing us to as a church in this community, in downtown Oceanside, in North County. What is the future that you are calling us to? And how can we partner with you to do that? We pray all this in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed our service today. We've got a few couple quick announcements before we head off. And the first is always, if you're new, if you're just checking us out for the first time, or if we haven't gotten a chance to get to know you, you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash contact and let us know who you are. Let us know how you found us. Let us know if you have any questions. We'd love to get to know you more. Second, and related to getting to know us more and who we are, we are continuing our Roots class today, this Sunday, at 5 p.m. So we started this last week, and this is a chance for you to get to know who we are, what we value as a church, ask any questions you have, and really understand where we come from. The next is, although we have Roots, we also have vision for the future, and we want you to be a part of that. So our three-year mission statement has run out, which means we need to create a new mission statement together as a church. And we are a congregational church, which means that our mission, our values, the goals we have for the future come from all of us, not just from the lead pastor or someone like me or someone on staff. So that is starting on Thursday, September 17th at 6.30 p.m. and there are going to be five listening sessions. So there's five sessions. The first one starts on Thursday 9.17. Last is our call and response scripture study that we're starting up again on Thursday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m. and this is a chance to study scripture as a group dialogue much like the call and response tradition found in sacred literature, liturgy, and music of all kinds. So join us for that as well. And lastly, we are a nonprofit 501c3, and we rely and thrive on the donations of people just like you. So if you'd like to give a gift today to what we're doing and what we are achieving here in Oceanside, then you can go to oceansidesanctuary.org give. Thanks everyone, have an amazing week.